So we are knee deep into fasting. And what's the, the question that Dr. Phil always asked? How's that working out for you? Right? So maybe some of you will say what the Israelites said. It's not working. So Isaiah 58 is um, a complaint on the part of God's people that they're fasting, but it's not working. They have a kind of a utilitarian approach to things, which we also do. But when we think about these disciplines of the ancient Christian church, we can drift into observing them and then come to the place of saying, but it's not working. Like, we thought it was sort of a formula that if we did this and did this and did it this many times, that there would be a result that would be kind of palpable, be kind of observable. And so in Isaiah 58, God takes his people to task and says, you want to know why it's not working? And this this morning is not a chastisement at all on our part of our practices. But it's a warning that, that will help us understand that ancient practices in themselves are not the whole game. Um, that it is not simply a formula that we follow and are guaranteed a kind of spirituality or a kind of, of Christianity. So here's the situation in Isaiah chapter 58. Um, we come to the place where the children of Israel say, we have fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet, here's what God says to them. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only for a man to humble himself for a day? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? An acceptable to the Lord? A fast acceptable to the Lord? He goes on and he sets them straight and says, please understand that it is not either or, and I've said that several times, and I'm going to rhyme on that again today. It is both and. It is not either doing things externally or doing things internally. It is not this or that. It is very often both and. And so God says, here's what I am looking for. Here is my fast that I've chosen. He says, is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the, of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will become like midday. So it is not fasting that will bring about spirituality or a lively relationship as God's people. 
It is the association when we fast with outer behavior, with actual um, terms of things that we're concerned about and that we do. And God says, you can go ahead and fast as much as you want. But if when you're fasting, you don't have something that translates into the way you practice your business, if you don't have something that translates um, into the way you care about people around you, as much as you fast and think that's a formula for getting my attention, it won't get my attention. So none of our disciplines will get God's attention if we see them as simply a means to God's ends. But rather, it is only as they express um, the change in our lives, the change in our hearts, that then God says, okay, now fasting will be an aid to that kind of a concern. And he associates with fasting um, the various social concerns that Israel ought to worry about and ought to practice as they continue to fast. So I'm going to dig into that a little bit today and talk to you about where we have been um, in modern evangelicalism. And Andrew and I are both recovering dispensationalists. Some of you don't even know what that word means. And some of us are filled with angst when we try to figure out what that word means. Those from a brethren background are panicking when they begin to hear us talk about the end of dispensationalism. Some of us that were trained in places like um, the Schofield Mecca and the Dallas Seminary and the Grace Seminary environs, um, we only knew dispensationalism. Dispensationalism was evangelicalism for us. And I'm going to point out some things this morning um, that hopefully are, are quite evident to you, but in a sense are, are an awakening for the tradition that most of us come from in Western evangelicalism over the last half a century or so. So what is it that God is looking for? How can we summarize what um, God says should mark his chosen fast? Very simply, a list of things um, that, that fighting injustice will be the proper expression of a heart that is committed to God, that freeing people from oppression will please God, that sharing with the hungry is a high good, that providing shelter to the homeless, to refugees, to immigrants is on God's heart, that clothing the naked is what God cares about, and that meeting the practical needs around me are very important to God. Now, as we talk about the, the core of our, of our faith, the core of our Christianity, I, I wonder how many times these things loom large in our minds, or whether or not we have drifted into a kind of a dualistic um, Christianity that we've kind of identified before over the last few months, that these things may be important, but are they really the most important things? It, is it a characteristic of... Um, faithful evangelical Christianity, that these are on our list of concerns, that these are on our to-do list as believers in Jesus Christ? Or is there something that trumps all of these, which is the affirmation that somebody has come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, and has either walked down the aisle, or has signed the bottom line of a, a contract, or has agreed in a prayer, 
And when we have that happen, do we tend to say there, that, that's really what's important? That would probably really, really please God. And what I want to say this morning is it is not either or, but it is both and. And I think it's probably time that we return to this part of the list and say that these things may well have been um, al allowed to sort of fall off by the, by the wayside as we've carried on over the last several decades anyway of Christianity. Let me talk to you about um, how we would begin to more practically implement um, fasting and its value. Um, and we're going to just give you a suggestion and hope that it'll be something that you could actually run with this week. And then I'm going to dig down and talk about where our hearts are and where our minds are in terms of how we live the both and sides of our Christian life. So there's a, an early work. Uh, it was actually proposed to be a canonical work. It wasn't accepted to be that, but a very holy writing in the early church. And here's the suggestion that was made. Uh, what could we do related to our fasting that could actually be um, a way to adhere to the concerns that God raised in Isaiah 58. Here's what the Shepherd of Hermas writings were. Estimate the cost of food you would have eaten on your fast and give that amount to a widow or orphan or someone in need. Be humble in this way that the one who receives something because of your humility may fill his soul and pray to the Lord for you. Now, how would we do that sort of thing today? So if, if you want to walk out of here with an idea that your fasting can be connected to something very practical, very uh, close to God's heart, it might be that you do this very thing. You say, okay, I'm going to fast Wednesdays, or I'm going to fast Wednesdays and Fridays. I'm going to calculate the value of the food that I did not purchase or did, I did not prepare. And I'm going to give that. I'm going to pay that forward to someone who is on God's list of an important kind of a person. So here are some of the suggestions. Um, the, these people who are um, widows or orphans or someone in need, how about taking the value of that food and then passing it on to them? Maybe it's because you get ahead of them in the drive-in and you pay for their food, or you get ahead of them in a restaurant and pay for their food, or you simply give money to them and bless them by that gift. Or you look for a, a kettle in this season for the Salvation Army, and you put the value of that meal, or that day's meals, simply into a kettle. And the wonderful thing about what is suggested by the Shepherd of Hermas is that there is something that is imagined to be a blessing returned to the giver, that rather than this being condescending, this is not a condescending gift, it is a way that a person can be um, enabled to bless you. So, you know when you give to someone, if the person is maybe hanging out uh, outside the LCBO, um, and they say, God bless you, and we trust that they, they mean that. Uh, we worked for several years at a Pape in Danforth, and the Danforth is a place where there were always homeless people just sort of hanging out. And I remember many times going by and sometimes feeling quite helpless about what to do to help. Um, but I, I came to understand by, by something that a person told me in an out-of-the-cold dinner. He said that when someone gives him something and he's on the street, 
It is not as valuable as when someone stops and talks to him. He said, we are nameless, faceless people to this city. But when you stop and not only give us something, but you talk to us, you're um, acknowledging that we are human beings along with you. And that's sort of this idea from the Shepherd of Hermas, that if you give to someone the humility of your donation, um, will be able to enable that person to have a full soul and pray to the Lord for you. So stop and when someone says thank you, say, could you say a little prayer for me? Turn it around um, from something that you condescend to give and something that you receive blessing from as you give. Um, but there are many ways like this that obviously through this Christmas season there is no lack of opportunities to give to those who are in the kinds of categories um, that, that is talked about by this Shepherd of Hermas. I follow a pastor in Vancouver who was a millionaire. It was a, it was a tough gig because um, Lindsey Brooks was his name and he was a, a, a retired contractor. And we were in the part of town that had a lot of homeless people and a lot of need. And many times people would come, they would knock on the door and ask for some help. And I would say, I, I don't have anything to give you. I have no money to give you. Um, I can pray for you. And they would often look back at me and say, well, Pastor Brooks would give us anything we wanted. And I would say, do you see a Rolls Royce in my parking spot? I don't have that money. Um, but he was someone who said, it is not my position to judge a person and say, well, what are they going to do with this money if I give it to them? Um, that is not my business, he said, and so he was always lavish and also a hard act to follow as you're in, in pastoral ministry. Let me go farther and just examine um, what it is that we're doing when we associate our faith with works. So this, this is what I want to dig into, the idea that we have external disciplines um, that we're learning, and they're associated with internal growth and community growth, but all of it is a bundle. It is not either or, it is both and. And so, over the last several decades, I think evangelicalism has veered to one degree or another, or to one extreme or another. So we might say that we remember the times that um, there were, there were churches that we would have called kind of liberal or modern, modernist churches. And there were churches that we would have called evangelical churches and maybe fundamental churches. And the people that were part of churches like, and I'll just sort of name the United Church, that sort of a church, we would characterize them as people who were works-oriented. We might even have criticized them and called them um, the do-gooders, as, as my family would have called um, those kinds of religious people. For me, I never understood what the point was about going to church. Because to the other extreme, the only thing that was taught to me, the only thing that really mattered, was that a person came to know Jesus Christ in that spiritual way. And I was part of what I confessed before about this sort of dualism between um, living life here only with a wish to get out of here, only with a wish to leave, um, to put in our time here so that by whatever formula is available to us, 
We know where we can go when we leave. We had no real view of the restoration of this creation. Um, we thought that there would be a throwaway event when this creation would be dispensed with and then a brand new start over creation would come. One of the verses that has haunted me about that in a very good way is that in Revelation that we're told that God will make all things new, not all new things. So what is God intends to make new? which is a revolutionary thought to someone who is living in an either-or world of you're either worried about people's spiritual needs or you're worried about their physical needs. To be a thorough follower of Christ is to be committed to meeting both spiritual and material needs. Um, I was part of many organizations that did good things, but did good those things or did those good things with a, a bait-and-switch kind of an approach, honestly speaking. So we might have built hospitals, we might have built schools all around the world, we might have fed the hungry, but we did it so that, right? Because we wanted those people um, to turn towards us and let us tell them about Jesus and that they needed to know him as Savior and Lord. In fact, in many projects, we literally had evangelists along with. So in a hospital setting, for example, we would build a hospital. We would provide doctors and nurses and evangelists because that was the important thing. We only built the hospitals, if we were honest, we only built them to take care of people's spiritual needs. If we needed to meet their material and their physical needs, we would do that by necessity only because we needed to get them to be the kind of person in a category that was going to the right place when we left here together. It, goes, it, it, it runs contrary to, to the beauty of what God has done and what God intends in terms of just rescuing into this old creation and preparing the renovation of this creation. So far from not caring about the things that God says he cares about, we dig into those things and we ask, how can we actually live in Milton as it is in heaven when it comes to things like poverty, when it comes to things like homelessness, when it comes, and we must not say, and they are secondary things only after we have really cared for spiritual things, but because in God's economy, it is both and, not either or. One of the great sections of the New Testament um, perfectly illustrates why this is, is provided for and expected. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, that by your, uh, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God as a result of works, so that, that's not right, is it? It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not, <laughs> little scribal gloss there, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time, beforehand, so that we could walk in them. Not because of our works. So we do not please God by the things we do. 
But we do please God by the things we do since they have been prepared ahead of time for us to do by him. See the difference? It's not we do those things to get God's favor. We have God's favor. And so we do things that are to do with righteousness and renovation and recreation and a new world that is yet coming. And we need to live in this world with the values of that coming world. When it comes to things like poverty, we are to work against poverty in this world um, as a promise about the world that is yet to come. When we think of the matters of, in, in our country as well as the rest of the world of homelessness, we need to be concerned with those matters here because we are bearing witness to a future world and there will be no homelessness in that future world. So when we have ministries that can provide shelter and home, we can do that in the name of Jesus, not as a bait and switch necessary strategy to get people in the door, but to say yes, when, when Jesus comes in the fullness of his kingdom, and to whatever degree we can imagine and, and enact that now, there will be no homelessness. There will be no starvation. There will be no, so many things. No more war, no more fighting, no, no more, no more. And we live not only in the hope of those things being true, um, but because they will be true and we can live into them. The kingdom of God is already here and coming. So we live in that kind of um, conundrum, that, that kind of dichotomy between the kingdom of God that is not yet here, and yet it is already here, and it is coming, and it is already arriving. We're not sitting in church waiting for the blessings of salvation in the future, somewhere else in a place called heaven. We are sitting in church as people who are anticipating the thorough renovation of the creation and the world in which we are living. So it is not either works or grace. It is both grace and works. If we understand grace, we will do the works that are the evidences of the grace that has been bestowed upon us, the evidences of the things that have been poured out on us. Um, this, this holism is something that is elusive to us. So the the recent history of the evangelical church um, has has been flawed by the the thought that really there's only one thing that is good and it's it's that gnostic um, dualism that the, the future and the and the spiritual and the ideal that's in the realm of good but other things are throwaway kinds of of values so the result of, of that brand of evangelicalism has been um, the sort of demoting of spiritual life and righteous living and ethical and moral behavior so that it is possible, it's possible to be the president of the United States and be despicable in your morality and ethics and claim that you're a Christian on the way to heaven. Am I allowed to say that here? Just here, though, don't tell anybody outside, right? But, but how, how is it that we can dispense with any thoroughgoing criticism of a morality and an ethics that is anti-Christian, that is quite opposed to the very values that Jesus has espoused? Well, 
it, it has come to the point where as long as we can somehow claim that we're part of the evangelical brand or we're part of um, the evangelical movement, that we're on our way to that better thing and we will either care partially about the world we're leaving behind or we will care kind of not at all about the world that we're living, leaving behind. When we are called, God says, to live into the disciplines of our Christian life in such a way that are consistent and are associated with the things that please him. So you want to know why your fasting doesn't work, God says? I'll tell you why your fasting doesn't work. Because you don't associate it with a change in your behavior and a change in your heart. Um, Some of the things that we worry about in our world are things that are um, identified even by some of the disciplines that we are trying to learn as a community. Um, one of them is that in, in our world, we're, we're brokenhearted about hunger and starvation in, in so much of the world. Um, we're brokenhearted about evil in, in so many parts of the world. And yet in Ephesians 2, there's a beautiful um, forecast for us, if we're followers of Christ, that If we have come to know him through grace, there are works that have been prepared beforehand for us to do. What works has God prepared aforehand or beforehand for you to do? These are very practical terms. Um, The things that are needs in our world, the things that are needs in our society, the things that are needs on our street are things that are easily identified. And yet this verse tells us that we have been prepared beforehand to do these acts of of service, not so that we please God because we've already dispensed with that, but because he is pleased with us and has given us grace and says, now, here are the works that I've prepared for you to do. I've experienced lots of situations in which people find that sweet spot where they discover that this seems to be what God is preparing for them to do. Um, You know about one of them. I'll just talk about two of them. Um, There's a young lady called um, um, Damali. She's on the left-hand side of this picture. Several years ago, I I was distressed by a walk that we took in a village near Jinja in Uganda. We took a walk as a team of people from Kitchener. And we brought some like buckets and mosquito nets and, and some rice. And we came to a hut in, in that village. And there were two little girls in that hut. One was seven and one was five, if I remember correctly. And they were in their hut alone by themselves. And so we asked Domali who they were. And she knew. And she told us their story. She told us that their dad had left to go find food and didn't come back. And so just the week before, their mom had also left to go and find their dad who had gone to find food. And she had not come back. And the neighbors kept coming and stealing their rice. And it just seemed to me to be about the most despicable thing that these poor little girls had no rice And anyone who was near them that might have been shelter or a caregiver for them was actually stealing their rice as well. And so it became a little 
sort of story that we had with Dumley. And, and we said, Dumley, we'll get her some rice, right? We'll get the kids some rice. And she said, we'll, we'll do that, and we'll, we'll do much more than that. Dumley has become a person of, of uh, might in the kingdom because she, as a, as a young um, Ugandan woman, has spearheaded the development of, of these homes called Sunrise Homes. Um, they are for babies who are rescued. They're from uh, the villages all up and down the, the Nile River, um, where, where parent mortality, mother mortality is, is extremely high. And so these many, many, many little babies and, and children are left orphaned. And so Domali um, has spearheaded a movement that is now huge of, of building homes for these children, finding them, rescuing them, and raising them. That is the work that God prepared ahead of time for Damali to do. When I met her for the first time, uh, she was just a single young woman, didn't know what she was going to be doing with her life, but was asking God how he would use her, how that she could be someone who have an, an impact in the villages um, that are remote and, and um, dangerous. And just one by one by one, God uh, put around her this, this movement of people who said, let's rescue those babies, let's raise them in homes, let's have them into homes in uh, Uganda and elsewhere where they will be raised and they will be loved and they will be cared for. Um, is is Domali doing this to please God? No, not at all but she's doing it out of the grace that, that God has given to her. The other person that you know, if you've been here for a while, on the right-hand side, one of the most incredible tragedies of COVID was that our friend Smita died of COVID early on, and it was one of those, God, are you, God? Smita? What had she done? She had... Um, raised the awareness of the many, many, many trafficked children in, in Calcutta. And she had a rescue ministry that, that found and rescued these children and then even pressed through towards um, the, the perpetrators of their crimes being found and prosecuted and, and then sentenced. Uh, and it was a difficult, difficult journey. But Smita was one of the most wonderful women that I've ever met. She was full of such incredible joy, um, with such incredible passion. Um, I saw Smita and Dean with a bunch of his CEO friends, and these white, well-off business people were moved to tears as this woman simply told them her story, and the story of those children that have been trafficked in, in Calcutta. These women found the work that God had prepared for them in advance to do. Is this just aside from the movement of God, or is it in the heart of the movement of God? Is it either caring only for spiritual needs and making sure people have signed the dotted line, or is it saying, no, it's not just either or. It's not either good works or grace. It's both, both and. And when they are parceled together, um, the joy that God works into his creation, along with its great sadness, is that his people who are uh, performing the external rites of their faith 
also are associating that with deep change in their values and are moved to living lives that are um, shaped by completely different orientations than we might have done otherwise. So what has God prepared in advance for you to do? St. Francis of Assisi is said to have said, um, preach the gospel. Um, sometimes use words. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Isn't that a wonderful idea? That everything we are and do should be a preaching of the gospel. If people say, why? Let's use our words. But let's first of all begin with our hands and our feet and say the gospel is not about just believing a cognitive assertion. The gospel is about being transformed from the inside out into something that we weren't before to affect a world um, that is being changed from the inside out to be a world that it wasn't before, but it is because of the power of Christ.